The Judeo-Christian tradition goes way back in terms of voices, right at the beginning of what Christians call the Old Testament. In the first books of Hebrew scripture, we have God speaking to Adam and Eve, then to the patriarchs, to Moses. So there's a long history of Jews and Christians expecting that at least sometimes, maybe only once in a lifetime, but sometimes God does speak to people. In classical writing, we found many accounts of encounters with the gods, the idea of daimons or spirits from which our notion of demons develops, and of course the idea of dream visions as well that can be prophetic or instructive visitations from the gods. I'm Corin Saunders. I'm a professor in the Department of English Studies in the University of Durham. I'm the Reverend Professor Chris Cook, and I work in the Department of Theology and Religion here in Durham University. In the New Testament, I think voices seem to occupy a slightly different slot, perhaps because Christians have from very early days understood Jesus as being the Word in a metaphorical or symbolic kind of way. Um, That kind of reduces the need for hearing voices in other ways. But despite that, uh, we still see voices in the early Christian period. St. Paul hears the voice of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Early Christian martyrs, some of them had visions and voices as they were going into the arena to their death. And then uh, the Desert Fathers hear voices of certain kinds in in the fourth century in the uh, desert in North Africa. What is interesting is that we seem to get into a period of Christian history, let's say approximately from the fourth century, fifth century onwards, when we don't have many accounts of people hearing voices. And then in the 11th, uh, 10th, 11th century, uh, suddenly this tradition reappears. And there are lots of accounts of visionary and voice hearing experiences, usually as a part of uh, a broader mystical encounter with God. One of the earlier characters in the medieval period who's well known for hearing a voice is St. Francis of Assisi. And although this appears not to have been a daily experience for him, there are certain important points in his life, turning points in his life, when voices seem to be quite significant. So most famously in the chapel at San Damiano, when he hears the voice saying, rebuild my church, a voice which initially he takes in a very literal sense, but subsequently he understands it in a much broader sense about Christ's church needing to be reformed, to be changed, and uh, that becomes his life mission. My name is Hilary Powell. I am a medievalist working on 11th and 12th centuries. The 11th and 12th century saw a boom in the the writing of hagiographical material, and these are accounts or or texts relating to the lives of saints. And within these texts, we find a large number of episodes or or narratives relating to uh, visionary experiences. So we have visions, we have voice hearing, we have other forms of kind of sensory perceptions. There are two very interesting miracles found in the shorter life of St. Wilfred, written by Edmund of Canterbury. This was a text probably written in the first decade of the 12th century for the monks, his brethren at Canterbury. The first of these narratives concerns a former sacristan of the priory, who from his name suggests an Anglo-Saxon monk known as Godwin. He had been sleeping before 
the relics of St. Wilfred. And as he woke in that kind of transitory state between sleeping and, and wakefulness, he thought he heard the monks uh, singing the psalms that signalled the start of matins. And he didn't sort of think twice about this apart from thinking, oh gosh, you know, it, it started, I, might be, I must be running late, I must have overslept. So he goes downstairs into the choir, opens the door, and he doesn't see anything. And it's this wonderful moment where he sort of rubs his eyes and he thinks, oh, it's because I've just woken up, I can't see, you know. So he stands in his position in the choir, and at that point he realises that there's no one else there. And he's all alone with this fantastic heavenly music that is going on around him. It's a really interesting miracle, A, because it is, you know, this angelic voice hearing, but also in terms of what voice hearing does as a kind of a narrative device, because the monks listening to this story are effectively reliving the experience that Godwin had, and so that every time they listen to this miracle that has all of the verses spelt out in full, which any monk reading would probably have ended up singing, they are in effect reenacting that visionary experience, that, that voice hearing moment. And that then creates this kind of emotion that leads them into prayer and devotion. And I think that's really interesting in terms of the, the history of voice hearing where we have this incredibly powerful and positive use of a voice hearing as a narrative device. The later Middle Ages, really from the 12th century onwards, was distinguished by an interest in the more human side of Christ. That was part of a larger interest, really, and emphasis on the individual. And in religion, it was a kind of reaction against the more desiccated, scholastic, doctrinal aspect towards the role of, of feeling, of emotional identification with Christ and his passion. It's sometimes referred to as affective piety. And one way of attaining that kind of feeling was to meditate or contemplate, perhaps on devotional reading, to create that kind of intense emotional bond. Another was to undergo ascetic experience such as fasting or other kinds of self-inflicted sufferings to try again to emulate Christ, emulate the martyrs in a world in which people aren't any longer being martyred for their Christianity. One of the most famous English mystics is Julian of Norwich, who was an anchorite, that is, she was literally walled up in a cell on the side of her church in Norwich in order to lead this very 
ascetic devotional life away from the world. And Julian is celebrated for her revelations or visions, which she has in a period of extreme illness in 1373. Some of the visions are troubling. For example, she sees um, the devil with his heat and his stench. And it's as if she hears two people jabbering away at once and muttering. But she says, I understood nothing they said, but I thought all this was to drive me to despair. So she hears voices, but she can't comprehend them. And it's actually an experience that's sometimes described by voice hearers today. This very troubling hearing voices speaking within the mind, but not being able to interpret the words. We get the same sort of emphasis on visionary experience in the Book of Marjorie Kemp, which was written around 1436. Marjorie's name's often linked with Julian of Norwich. Marjorie's about a generation later. But really, she couldn't have been more different. She was married. She had 14 children. She ran a brewing business and she went on pilgrimages as far as Rome and Jerusalem. So her first visionary experience takes place in a period of what was probably extreme postnatal depression and a kind of psychotic break. And she seems to see devils threatening her, pulling her, hauling her about and shouting out to her with great threats, asking her to forsake her Christian faith and belief and deny her God. And she has this period of madness where she tears at herself and has to be restrained. And then as she's lying in bed, she's cured by the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to her and saying to her these words, Daughter, why have you forsaken me and I never forsook you? A particular theme of the book is doubt, and Marjorie makes a lot of the difficulty of persuading others and of the criticism she experiences from some quarters, but also others believe in her as inspired, as holy. And I think for voice hearers today, there's a real recognition of the doubt of others, the sense that they might be mad, but equally it's very inspiring and liberating to have this kind of authorised voice, which is seen as a genuine experience, which takes very seriously not just the experience of voice hearing, but what the voices say. And that can be very meaningful, I think, for people who read the book today. Around about the 14th century in England, um, and perhaps in other parts of Europe too, we start to encounter uh, a thinking which plays down the significance of voices. So after we've heard about Francis and others having a, a life-changing experience as a result of voices, we have um, an emphasis on the unreliability of voices, that actually it's easy to be deceived by voices. And this becomes particularly strong in the thinking of the Carmelite mystics, especially St John of the Cross, but also Teresa of Avila, that actually the most dramatic experiences, the visions and the voices, are not always the most important ones. In fact, they're the ones in which it's most easily that we are misled. In some ways, things change with the Reformation, which starts with Martin Luther's theses in 1516. 
And there's a real critique of the whole structure of, of the church and in particular a questioning of whether there's any need for an intermediary between the individual believer and God. And this means in part that there's less need for priests, but there's also less need for saints and rituals and images. And we get the whole movement of iconoclasm, the destruction of images, the dissolution of the monasteries and so on. And and along with that, I think, a suspicion about those things. So to some extent, the idea of the spirits who walk the world is demonized. That doesn't mean that all spirits are necessarily going to be demons, but it does mean that that's perhaps the most ready explanation. Lots of Christians today report hearing God speak to them. That may sound strange, but of course prayer is all about speaking to God and most Christians and indeed Jews and Muslims speak to God in prayer. Sometimes it seems that an answer comes back and we have a number of studies emerging mainly from charismatic and Pentecostal congregations in the United States and here in the UK which suggest that it's not uncommon that when people are praying they hear a voice responding. It's not always out loud, sometimes it's a voice in their thoughts, but they experience it as not being them, uh, a reply, as it were, to what they've said to God in prayer. <laughs> 